just think about drugs. I just thought that taking psychoactive substances were just unequivocally bad. And here it is. I'm giving people in the lab these substances to study the effects of the drugs, to try to develop treatments for a variety of reasons. We're studying these substances. And then where I have this internal belief that these substances are not good. And without even questioning that belief. And so I learned a lot about myself in that process and I learned how, you know, I engage in sheet-like behavior. I just follow the group. And so I, I was not happy with that. And so I had to uh, had to change. I had to really interrogate uh, everything I thought I knew. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Field Tripping. Today, we have Dr. Carl Hart with us, neuroscientist, former chair of the Department of Psychology at Columbia University, research scientist at New York State Psychiatric Institute, and author of many books, including the 2021 release, Drug Use for Grownups, Chasing Liberty in the Land of Fear. His book's mission is to decrease the vilification of responsible, autonomous people who want to work with drugs for personal betterment and consciousness expansion. Carl's work uses empirical evidence to guide public policy, even if it makes people uncomfortable, in an effort to have more humane and effective criminal justice policies and a healthier and more productive society overall. Carl, thank you for joining us today and welcome to Field Tripping. Uh, thank you for having me, Ronan. It's good to see you again. Uh, I just want to correct one thing. I'm no longer the chair of my department. I, I did a three-year stint. And um, once you do your time, uh, you, you don't. Um, I don't have to do another term, so I'm good. You don't have to do another term or you can't do another term? What is the choice there? Well, I won't do another term, so... Can I ask why? If it's uh, off topics, no problem. Oh, but, uh, you know, it, yeah, it's, a very, it's very simple. You know, it's administration and it's political and it takes you away from the work that you actually came to do. It's a job that you have to be an advocate on behalf of the privilege and not on behalf of the have-nots. And so uh, um, I didn't sign up for that. Can you unpack that a little bit? Why, why is it a job where you have to advocate on the on behalf of the privileged and not not others? First of all, you work for the administration, the university. And, and so when you work for the university, sometimes the university is in the wrong, but you work for the university. And so your job is kind of to protect the university. Uh, and as chair, you also have to make sure that you protect your faculty. And our faculty, they, they do pretty well in life. Uh, they are part of the privileged group, me included. But we typically come into academe to kind of take care of the students. And also, uh, given that I study drugs, I would prefer to be advocating on behalf of those people who have been shut out, drug users, people who've gone to jail for drugs, uh, rather than people who are doing okay. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, there's a there's lot of questions and conversation to go deep into that uh, upcoming. But before we hop into this, you're dialing in right now from... Uh, the Swiss Alps. And uh, just before we started recording, you were talking about why you're in the Swiss Alps and you spend approximately half your time there. And I asked why, and you said, because you can't be Black and conscious and spend all your time in the United States. I'd love to learn more about that. It's not that complicated if you're paying attention to the society in the U.S. Many of our sort of great figures, people like James Baldwin, W.E.B. Du Bois, a number of those folks, they had to leave the United States or at least live outside of the United States for much of the year in order to mainly protect their sanity. You know, there's so much injustice that happens in the United States, uh, some of it based on race, other based on economics, a wide range of things. And so uh, when I think about my field, drugs, think about the people who primarily go to jail for, for drugs and all of those sort of things, it's, uh, you, you see that it's uh, the poor, black and the brown, people who've been shut out. And, and then I've been working more than 30 years to kind of educate the population about what's happening as it relates to drugs. 
But yet much of what we know, which much of what I've been saying and other people who actually know has been ignored largely to continue some story, uh, some narrative that the media politicians are, are, are comfortable with. And so I'm watching all of this sort of death and destruction carnage. And when been writing about this sort of thing and trying to help people to understand, and it's just being ignored. So it's like watching a relative die from an illness, which we have the cure, but we slowly watch this relative die. And I just can't be in the United States and watch this sort of thing and then keep my sanity. And so um, I have to live in a place like Switzerland, where they they care about their citizens. So that's why I come here uh, half of the year, try to recuperate and get be renourished, and uh, so I can come back and continue to fight. I appreciate that, and just want to unpack it a, a little bit more. The thought that the question that first came up to me is: your initial line was you can't be black and conscious uh, and live in Mer- America full time. Totally understand where you're coming from that. My question uh, is, what does it mean to be conscious? And, and you use the words, you can't be, and you identified um, a few figures about what you know, what you know. Um, and what did you mean by that? I think they're probably touching on the same theme, but can you, can you go into that a, a little bit more? What is it that you know? What is it that you're conscious of that people are ignoring, or at least politicians and a good swath of the population are ignoring? You and I talk uh, right now is summer of 22. The summer of 20, uh, we saw, for example, George Floyd be killed. And then we heard about Breonna Taylor being shot in her home, shot and killed. The role that drugs played or or the role that people tried to uh, use drugs in those sort of killings. Um, They tried to scapegoat those killings or drugs in those killings. Eventually, uh, many people came to understand that it wasn't the drugs. It was the horrible sort of policing and the sort of understanding, this tacit understanding that you can do, you can behave inappropriately, specifically in, in some Black communities or toward some Black people. That's the kind of thing that we've known for years in our country, but it still continues as I am a parent of boys and daughter. And so when you think of, uh, when I think of my children potentially being at risk, other people's children at risk, it makes me sick. And so I have to step out of it uh, in order to recuperate from that kind of trauma, if you will, so I can continue to work and participate in making the society better. That's one sort of area. And then when we think about Now, the country, our country, talks a lot about drug overdoses. They oftentimes blame opioids. And then, you know, when you really think about it, it's really not that easy to die from opioid overdose unless you have something as potent as the fentanyl analogs. Most people are not seeking the fentanyl analogs. They're seeking something like heroin. And then we have technology to test when people buy these drugs off the streets to make sure they don't have these substances aren't tainted with the fentanyl analogs or something even more potent and potentially more dangerous. We have this technology, but we haven't made it available to the public. When you see these kind of things going on, when you see places like Switzerland, Spain, Portugal, the Netherlands, Austria, Colombia, they have this technology, and they make it available to the public for free. Uh, And we are not doing that in the United States. Uh, It's sickening, and we're not even having that conversation. Uh, But yet we are losing our minds about the the opioid crises without actually having any real solutions to deal with what they think the crisis is. First of all, when you when you ask people, what do you mean when you say opioid crises? Then they will say something like, it's like, are you talking about addiction rates? Are you talking about overdose? What are you talking about? So you have to ask them to separate what they're talking about. Because when we think about addiction rates, the addiction rates haven't changed. The opioid addiction rates haven't changed that much. And by the way, people who are addicted to opioids are the ones who are less likely 
to be overdosing because they have tolerance to opioids. And these kind of things, you never have these conversations just to unpack this a little bit. And then so you say, are you worried about overdoses? Yeah, that's a real concern. All right. And then you say, well, okay, can we look at what drugs people have in their system if they die from what we're deeming an opioid or some drug overdose? Oftentimes, we never measured the levels uh, to determine whether or not which drug rose to the level of toxicity, because oftentimes people have multiple drugs in their system, and we don't know which drug, if any, caused uh, the death. Uh, And so we have to make sure that we uh, carefully analyze that and figure out what's going on. And then that would kind of point us in the direction that we should take in order to um, uh, aim our solutions at. But we we don't do that. We don't have these conversations. And so it is maddening for someone like me who has been writing about this. I wrote about this in the latest book. And uh, it's uh, these simple, simple uh, sort of strategies, approaches have not been included in the public discourse. And so you can, you can see how frustrating uh, that might be to somebody who cares about uh, other people. Uh, absolutely. Um, one of the reasons for this podcast is to engage people in conversations uh, around drugs, specifically psychedelics, but, um, and some of the things that you touched on, you know, right before when I was preparing for, for this conversation, I I watched your conversation, various like interviews you've done. And, uh, you know, it talks about like the high level conversations around like drugs are, are bad, you know, how am I supposed to change my attitude towards it? But I think data really matters. And I don't know if you know the numbers off the top of your head, but you said it's not that easy to die from an opioid overdose if we take it out of the conversation of fentanyl and, and fentanyl analogs. And do you know the numbers? You know, uh, when you remove fentanyl, how the proportions change and, and what happens in that context? No, I don't think anybody does because we're not analyzing. Let's take a step back. When you think about the United States, uh, there are two main groups that do death investigations folks who are filling out the death certificates, medical examiners, these people have a medical degree and some training in forensic pathology. And then the other group is coroners. These people are elected. All that's really required is that they are registered voters and maybe a high school diploma. They don't have any medical training or anything like that. When you take a place like California, state like California, I believe they have like 58 counties. In 49 of those counties, the coroner is uh, the sheriff. And so you can see how that can be, that you can see potential conflicts of interest, particularly if police are involved in killings or deaths and that sort of thing. And so when you have a situation like that, most of the people who are doing death investigations in the United States are corners. And there are no standards. There are limited standards and it varies widely. Since you have this wide range of um, educational skill sets and educational attainment. And so when you have this varied group of people, varied range of qualifications, you will not have standards and there aren't many standards. And so uh, when you ask the question, do we know uh, how many of those deaths occur without fentanyl? No, uh, no, no one knows. I mean, if they tell you they know, it, it, they don't because uh, you, you ask them to show you the blood levels and which levels you think rose to toxicity. No one can tell you that because we are not really testing for that. We've been concerned about opioid related deaths or drug related deaths for uh, at least a decade and a half now. It seems as though. That will have been one of the first things that we tried to standardize. Make sure we get blood levels for all of these deaths and make sure we determine which drugs rose to the level of toxicity. Now we can aim our solution at what appears to be the problem. But that, that hasn't happened. That conversation hasn't happened. Appreciate that. And uh, I think that's t- totally on point. And, and I'm not trying to challenge you on this, but when, when you say things, it's not as easy to die from opioids when you remove fentanyl analogs. What is the basis for that statement then? Yeah. So I'm in Switzerland, for example. Thank you for asking that question. I'm in Switzerland, for example. And Switzerland is one of the places in the world where they actually prescribe heroin as 
part of treatment, treating people who have heroin, who's addicted to heroin. And when I say heroin addiction, I mean uh, the DSM uh, criteria, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association. So they prescribe heroin as part of the treatment. Now, on average, the people in these programs, they're on about a gram a day of, of heroin. Now, what you get on the streets when you are in places like Canada and the U.S., uh, you don't get that kind of heroin. And in these programs where people are taking those large doses of heroin, nobody's overdosing. No one's dying because of tolerance, because of also you know the dose. uh, All of these sort of things decrease the likelihood of people having problems. And so, uh, and also heroin has been around forever and we haven't had this kind of issue. So that's one of the reasons that I say that heroin alone or an opioid alone, outside of people not knowing that they have a potent opioid like fentanyl or an analog, it's difficult to have a die from an overdose. That's very helpful. It may not be earth shattering to those folks, but I think for the vast majority of people out there, and it may be earth shattering to hear that because I, I certainly wasn't aware of that. I want to shift gears a, a little bit. Um, thank you in the introduction for being here today. And I also want to express my gratitude uh, for coming to Keith Ferrazzi's house in LA uh, as part of the Ordinary Trip documentary for anybody listening. Carl joined us for uh, a part of the documentary uh, where we had dinner at Keith Ferrazzi's house and we had um you know, I think a, a great collection of people to have conversations around some of the pressing issues around psychedelics and, and the drug war generally. And so Rick Doblin was there and I won't spoil it all, but there's some some great people and uh, it was really great. So I want to thank you for coming to that. That was really appreciated. And I think your voice was incredibly impactful, certainly to me. <clears throat> and I think to anyone who watches the documentary, I think think the points you make and also the passion by which you express them, I, I think is going to resonate with a lot of people. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Um, uh, you and I got a chance to meet uh, along with some other folks. So it was, it was a, a good time it was had by all. Awesome. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. No, I did not get a chance to read your first public facing book, High Price, before this podcast. There was a few things that stuck out uh, to me about it. The first was the full title, which was High Price, A Neuroscientist's Journey of Self-Discovery That Challenges Everything You Know About Drugs and Society. And in many ways, say for the fact that I'm not a neuroscientist, it's kind of the narrative for Ordinary Trip, which was I, I threw myself into a journey of self-discovery with psychedelics. I'm not entirely naive to psychedelics, but I'm certainly not the most experienced person with psychedelics. And we documented uh, that journey, which was incredible for me on many levels, but it did change my conceptions of psychedelic drugs and truthfully, the narratives we tell ourselves. And actually this podcast really is about the narratives we tell ourselves and helping people see perspectives and narratives from other people's viewpoints, like your viewpoint, like Michael Pollan's viewpoint. And we've had a lot of people on. In many ways, we are both kind of sticking our necks out in such pursuits. Although the gravity of the decisions uh, are probably very different given particular, our respective skin colors, being frank. So with that said, I had a few questions. The first is, what inspired you to, in the first place, just pursue neuropsychopharmacology and the psycho study of psychoactive drugs in the first place? And there's going to be a couple of follow-on questions to that lead-in, but let's start with that one. Yeah, I mean, you, you said a lot there. I mean, um, I mean, just the language that we use. I mean, you mentioned pollen and psychedelics. There's a reason that your podcast uh, uses the term psychedelic. I mean, it's one of these terms that's acceptable now in mainstream white world. And that's one of the reasons I don't use the term. These are all psycho- psychoactive drugs, and people who use them are seeking the same thing. Although we tend to act as if people who are using psychedelics are uh, somehow seeking a greater plane or uh, than somebody who's using cocaine or heroin or something else. And then when you have a drug like MDMA, which is not a psychedelic, it's an amphetamine. But uh, since we like that one, we include that one in the psychedelics. And so that's all political and that's all done, skillfully done. I mean, do you think about just Michael Pollan, how um, 
uh, he has been received versus how I've been received. And we're talking about the same things. All of that's done skillfully because it's uh, comfortable for the mainstream world. But please understand that that doesn't mean that it's reality, just uh, our sort of construction of it. And that leads me into uh, talking about why I started studying drugs. I started studying drugs because I was taken in by that nonsense. You know, I I was told in the 80s that crack cocaine was destroying my community and communities like mine. And so between 84 and 88, I was in the U.S. military, carrying an M16 on behalf of our country. While in the military, I was trying to figure out what more I could do. So I started to study. And part of that, uh, I started studying uh, psychology, neuroscience, drugs. And I thought that uh, the best way for me to make a difference was to try to understand the neurobiology of drug addiction. Because if I could understand that, then maybe I could help treat people who were having problems with drugs. And then by doing so, I could improve the lot of my community because I believed that drugs were destroying the community and making the community less viable. 30 years later, I realized that, no, I was that was wrong. And that was a story that we were telling. And we, were, we left out the parts about Ronald Reagan's sort of awful economic programs uh, as it relates to communities like mine. Uh, social safety nets were taken away. People didn't have uh, jobs that paid well, or they didn't have uh, health care. Education, all of these things are always far more important than drugs. But it took me a long time to really understand that. And then I start to understand how we as a society have deemed some drugs good, other drugs not good, not because of the drug's pharmacology so much, but because of the perceived users of the drugs. As a result of learning those kind of things, I had to study more than just pharmacology, neuroscience, and biology. I had to think about the society in which drug use takes place. I had to think about the political sort of groups and institutions that uh, are important for making the laws and why they made certain laws. So all of those sort of uh, forces uh, have combined to give me, I hope, a more fuller understanding of what's happening with drugs. But as James Baldwin has said, you know, when you go on a journey, you can't know what you'll find and you can't know what what you find will do to you. And that's what happened to me. I didn't know this would change me in the way it has. Uh, It has changed me in a way where when I started on this journey, I, I I didn't really use drugs. But at this stage, at 55 years old, you know, now. After studying drugs in the lab, giving thousands of doses to people of all of these drugs, uh, now I can see the benefit of these drugs and I have a better understanding of why people use these drugs. And so, um, so I do as well. But that's, I would have never guessed that I would end up in this place. But it's a real example of allowing the evidence to dictate your position. If only other people would allow the evidence to dictate their positions, we might have a better society. Totally agreed. Two questions, not entirely related, but one of the people we've had on uh, the podcast um, that was very insightful for me uh, was Duran Young, the head of Black Therapists Rock. I don't know if you have met Duran or not, Um, but like you, She's black. She's a woman. She served in the U.S. military. And in that conversation, um, she said something along the lines, and I'm paraphrasing here, about how she was risking her life to serve a country, you know, that basically wants her dead. I'm just curious to know, when you served in the military, was was your awareness of all of what you kind of touched on about the policies that have been implemented that have served to destroy or make things, that's a big word, but make things a lot worse in the Black community. Were you as conscious about how maybe calculated or how that was operating? And, and, and did you feel that sense of 
conflict between serving in the military for a country that probably does very little service to, to your community? I share the sentiments that she expressed. Now, when I was in the military, and I had believed that the society was really improving, that we were improving on a number of these issues, and we were trying to be better people as a society um, as a whole. And so I was encouraged more than anything. And that encouragement could just be simply from being naive. But when, in fact, uh, there are people, there were people who were older, who were smarter, and they were saying that, no, it's just a new sort of language, new way. Uh, but as naive young people, you may be like, like me at the time, I thought we were improving. Um, and uh, unfortunately, today, uh, with uh, we see this more in, uh, with the election of Donald Trump, and it's kind of clear that uh, we still have many of these problems with us. No, I guess the bottom line is that I, I was too dumb, too naive to really know that the situation wasn't um, hasn't hadn't improved as much as I thought. But at some level, it's kind of nice to be naive and dumb and energetic because then you can set out to make your contribution, to improve it. But being dumb and naive, you, uh, you, it kind of neglects the experience of those people who are older and wiser. Do you have a concern? I mean, listening to you say that, it makes total sense. Uh, one concern that comes up for me as I listen to it, though, is like, how do you stop people from like, becoming just purely cynical? Well, for me personally, I can, on this case, I, I can only like speak for myself. If I become cynical, hopeless, I'm dead. I mean, what's the point of living? As long as I'm here, um, I have an obligation to try to make the situation better um, because there were people who were certainly in a lot worse position than I am in a lot more dire position than me. And they continue to try to make a society better, continue to uh, fight to improve their society. And, and so I, I have the same obligation. You, you know, I can have my moments of cynicism or feeling hopeless. Uh, that's fine. Uh, but that's what's that's why I'm in Switzerland. So I can make sure that uh, I'm rejuvenated so I can come back and live to fight another day to improve our society. Because there are a number of people I know who are fighting and trying to do the same thing. And so uh, who am I to say that their work doesn't matter? Appreciate that. Going back to your, your uh, journey of self-discovery, you talked about how one of the things you discovered was how the vilification of drugs and, you know, has an imp of certain drugs has an impact and blaming the crack cocaine epidemic on, on being the source of destruction for the black community uh, was a not outright lie, a, a significantly misleading statement, which I think are all very profound and have, have affected your, your evolution in terms of your career and, and, and your philosophy. Is there anything you learned about yourself in that journey of self-discovery as well? I mean, a lot of that seems like academic and purpose-driven, but as Carl Hart, the person, what, what came out of that experience? Yeah, I learned a lot about myself. I mean, I learned, for example, that I too had swallowed the propaganda uncritically. And here it is, I'm a scientist and I thought of myself as being critical. I mean, I'm talking about in my area, not some other area that I'm not that I'm not an expert in. And and so so it made me question damn near everything I knew and how I knew it and what was the evidence supporting. Uh, my view. Um, so uh, I mean, we just think about drugs. I just thought that taking psychoactive substances were just unequivocally bad. And here it is, I'm giving people in the lab these substances to study the effects of the drugs to try to develop treatments for a variety of reasons. We're studying these substances. And then where I have this internal belief that these substances are not good, and then without even questioning that belief. And so I learned a lot about myself in that process and I learned how 
you know, I engage in sheep-like behavior. I just follow the group. And so I, I was not happy with that. And so I had to uh, had to change. I had to really interrogate uh, everything I thought I knew. And also uh, along this process, uh, I think I learned how to be more empathetic, uh, to put myself in other people's shoes and uh, try and think about, all right, did I harm anybody with my words, my actions today? And I have to like reflect on my day. Particularly when I was department chair, I had to make sure I was not, I hadn't harmed a, a subordinate by my actions, my words, or anything of that nature. I wanted to make sure I didn't do anything that would negatively impact their interactions with their loved ones. And so I wanted to, I mean, all of these things, uh, I hope, helped me to be a more caring, conscientious uh, empathetic person and a more tolerant person. And so, you know, even if someone is doing something that I may not agree with, but if they're not harming other people and they are enjoying themselves or what have you, who am I to um, uh, say that they can't do that? Uh, all of these things uh, I learned along the way. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And my third question just uh, around high price was what inspires you to stick your neck out on the way you did to write such a book? Um, one of the things I've become much more conscious of through truthfully the interviews I've done through this podcast is just how different the mental math is around decisions like this for, like I said, for like a white person like me and a, and a black person or between a man and a woman or a heterosexual and an LGBTQ different math for, for different people. And so I, I imagine that the math uh, uh, for your decision is a lot different than mine. And, and so what, what inspired you to write that book? And, and, and the same kind of goes for drug use for grownups. It's like, you're, you're outing yourself quite a bit. And, and the risk uh, factors that go around that are, are frankly higher for you um, in, in many ways, because there's a greater level of scrutiny on you. You have all of the historical and legacy and current baggage, uh, you know, of being a, a black man in America at the time of the year. Um, and, and so, yeah, what, 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 when, when did that crystallize when you're like, I, I want to do this, I need to do this and put myself out there uh, for either book? Yeah. So um, when I think about the books and being courageous about telling the stories that I told, it's important for your listeners to understand that my silence will not protect me. So there are a number of people who belong to marginalized groups, despised groups, and they may believe that they can be silent and their silence will protect them. Uh, they can hide and so forth. Uh, history has shown us that your silence will not protect you. And so if your silence will not protect you, and then my sort of motto has always been, you know, if I'm going to get fucked. I'm going to, the blood is going to be on everybody's hands, you know? And so I think about the stories that I told. Uh, the stories that I tell were humanizing other people, being concerned about other people, showing how uh, people from my community were just as human as anybody else. So you tell these kind of stories, uh, deeply human uh, and compassionate, and then People say there are some risks in that. Well, I'll take that chance every time because uh, there is far more risk in some cases for me being on Columbia's campus, uh, like just going to like we have a number of gyms. I mean, I go to certain sometimes some gyms and and then there are people who, who might check me at the door as if I'm just another nigga. And that's far more risk than telling this story publicly where everyone can see, you know, I have and where I've had to deal with those kind of issues where people do these horrible things in private and they get away with. It. Whereas if it's done in public, uh, now you're in the court of public opinion and now the public can see. I didn't think of it as being that much of a risk, one. And, and two, I think about my children, kids who will come after me. And I really wanted them to know that you don't 
have to be perfect to make a contribution to your society. Most of the people, the vast majority of people who made contributions, important contributions, weren't perfect, despite the bullshit that we tell about those people. As humans, we make mistakes and we improve. We learn from those mistakes. What was the feedback from you know your colleagues, your partners when you came out with these books? Were they like, "Are you are you losing your mind, Carl?" Or were they was it you know generally supportive and being like, "Way to go! This needs to be done." Yeah, overwhelmingly positive people who actually talked to me. You know, like high price was an easy one to kind of deal with because high price is a it fits in that mold of you know uh, poor boy done well. I mean, everybody likes that kind of story. That's easy. Uh, whereas drug use for grownups is a little more difficult for people to digest because the parts from the narrative about drugs, our typical narrative about people who have done drugs, do drugs, is that, oh, I, I, I did this drug and then I went down this path of destruction and then I found Jesus and now... Uh, I no longer am addicted, and now I'm preaching the gospel of abstinence. And so you're kind of seen as a hero. That's not the story of drug use for grownups. Uh, the story of drug use for grownups is that drug use can be looked upon or looked at like uh, just any other sort of activity in which people do in order to um, uh, decompress or enjoy their free time with their loved ones, like going to the theater or going to uh, some other entertainment. Uh, the same is true with taking the drug with your partner or so forth. Uh, and that departs from that bullshit narrative that we typically tell in our society. And so people have a more difficult time with that. People in my circle, my friends or my relatives, they all loved it because um, it's science-based and, they, and they, they know it. Whereas there have been people, certainly in the media, who didn't read it. And then they also harp on the fact that I said I used heroin in, in the book. I also said I used MDMA. I said I used cannabis. I said I used a number of drugs. But heroin is the one that they focus on because heroin is salaciously sexy. Uh, and so it can be the headlines. You know, uh, the headlines were something like Columbia professor uses inject heroin every day. You know, bullshit like that. And, and I said nothing anywhere near that in the book, but that's what it became. Um, and that was done purposefully in order to dismiss anything in the book. And the main message of the book was about love and how drugs can be used to help us be more magnanimous, take better care of people in our society, see things from other people's perspective. And the book also pointed out how this war on drugs, it's really a jobs program for a select group of people in our society, namely law enforcement, even scientists. I benefited from the war on drugs as a scientist, received millions of dollars of grants. Uh, and I've tried to point this out in a book, but if you say he injects heroin every day, you can now, you don't have to deal with those issues, even though that's a lie. Um, but you don't have to deal with these other nuanced issues. And so um, that was hard to take in the media because there was like not one person, you know, and then people didn't read the book. Those people were saying that. But then there were people who read the book and they were I got letters, emails, all kinds of uh, correspondence, uh, which was really good. And it kept me going and it keeps me going and it keeps me writing. And it lets me know that I have to continue with this message. And um, uh, it also lets me know that I'm not special in this way. Uh, many people who I admire throughout history were attacked when they were here. But Drug Use for Grownups is uh, it's a book that has legs. People will buy that book throughout history because uh, here it is. You've got someone who given these drugs to people for his entire career and studied them and published it in scientific, scientific literature, uh, telling you what's real, what's the deal. 
um, and 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 so I uh, I'm very proud of that book. Uh, you know, when we spoke at Keith's, one of the points you made is that your hope for the message that the book would transmit and how it got covered in the media were very different. Um, and you touched on that, which is it was about Columbia professor uses heroin. How did it make you feel? Were you expecting that or uh, were you surprised by that? I was not expecting the level of dishonesty. Um, I'll give you an example. There's a sort of columnist at the New Yorker, Ben Wallace, I believe his name is. And he was just dishonest about uh, the book. And we had conversations on Zoom because he wanted to understand, you know, neuroimaging and and about drugs and how this didn't write about any of that. And he was, it was a hit piece. And he also just was dishonest about, he said, the drug use for grownups basically hadn't done as well as high price. And drug use for grownups had been out for maybe six months and it had already outsold high price. And high price had been out for, I don't know, eight years at that point. That was emblematic of some of the people in the media who were just dishonest. And one of the things that I think happened with drug use for grownups with people like this guy. So I put myself on the line in drug use for grownups by saying that, of course, I use these drugs. And I did so to encourage other middle class responsible people to get out of the closet because there are millions of people around the world who use drugs and the illicit drug trade is a multi-billion dollar industry. Now, an industry that big could only be propped up by people who are middle to upper class. And so they are the majority of the users. And so I wanted to show the public a more representative view of the typical drug user. And so I called upon people to get out of the closet. And so there were people in the media like this particular guy who I suspect use psychedelics, but I'm calling upon them to get out of the closet. And they don't want to do that because they they don't want to risk their privilege. And so those people, uh, I could tell by the level of dishonesty and attacks that I hit a nerve with them. And the nerve was, I was calling on them to be more courageous. And they were afraid, and they are afraid, to get out of the closet. Uh, And they so these people skillfully try to separate psychedelics from other drugs. Because psychedelics, the writers in our media, they are skillfully trying to suggest that psychedelics are different from these other drugs. When in fact, the brain sees these things as just chemicals, receptors in the brain, they interact with, and then they do their thing. But we have put all of this sort of narrative that we've layered on top of it to say, these are good drugs, these are bad drugs. Um, And there are no such things as good and bad drugs. Yeah, it was a a point you raised as well, which is people like to talk about psychedelics as, as creating connection connection to yourself or your inner purpose or your soul or whatever you want to call it, connection to other people, you know, breaking down egos and creating, you know, a a happy global society. And truthfully, you know, in my experience with psychedelics, they are quite potent in that way. But I really appreciated your point, which is if you're demonizing certain drugs and, and, and lionizing psychedelics, then you're just creating new divisions and you're actually creating separation. And I think that's a, a, a really valid point. And you know, in, in many ways, ordinary trip had the, has the same purpose as as drug use for grownups, which is encouraging people to come out of the closet about their drug use. Now, I fall prey to kind of exactly what you're talking about, which is I was doing it in the context of psychedelics. And I do think that there's like a rationale of like, well, psychedelics are acceptable. I mean, if you go back 15 years, no drugs were acceptable. And now cannabis is going to become acceptable. And then psychedelics and it could, in theory, create a platform to have a much more thoughtful conversation about anything else, or it could go the opposite way, which would lead to further demonization and, and certainly my philosophy. Well, it, it's uh, going to go the opposite way uh, yeah. because whenever you say, like, these are all good, uh, we're going to see that people will get in trouble with the psychedelics 
because that's just how things happen. I mean, um, uh, with drugs, you have to make sure you attend to dose settings, all of these things. And you have to also make sure that people are responsible enough in the right mindset. Otherwise, you're going to have people bring their problems to that situation, just like we do with everything. And so you will have people getting in trouble and then the drugs will be blamed for that. Of course, the drugs are not the reason for that. People bring their stuff to these things. That's one of my main concerns. It's like we don't want to idolize some drugs as if they are all good because it doesn't work that way uh, or that they're all bad. It doesn't work that way. That's the point. And I understand, like you're saying, ordinary trip, you have to get in where you can fit in. And right now we fit in with psychedelics and people can hear that message. I mean, imagine if you did this uh, ordinary trip and you're talking about your experiences with heroin, no one would even pay attention. So we, un uh, I completely understand that. And I uh, certainly um, 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 hope you success. Um, and, but you and I, we have different roles and, and, and that's cool. That's not, there's nothing wrong with having different roles, but it's important for us to understand that we are being political agents in what we're doing. But we pretend that, oh, you're being political, but I'm not being political when we're all being political agents. Yeah, I think that's right. But one of the things that's come up as an idea, and I haven't fully unpacked it, but I'm just going to present it to you, is that I think one of the things that has been done well by the psychedelic narrative is the intentionality. And you touched on it, which is like drugs aren't good or bad. It all depends on the circumstances and the intentionality and all that kind of stuff. And the narrative around psychedelics has, has been, and I can't say for how long, certainly since I've been part of this conversation, that they need to be done intentionally. That set and setting matter. That's not a dialogue we hear with most other drugs. And, and so I'm wondering if there's something in that about can we bring that conversation around intentionality to all other drug use uh, in a way that may soften the edges around the drugs like heroin and PCP and all the ones that have the negative connotations associated with it? I, I don't know. It, it's just a thought that came up uh, as, as we were talking. Yeah. Um, so when you think about something like heroin, even though the larger community hadn't had that conversation in terms of intentionality, People who use heroin have had that conversation since time began. Uh, people who use cocaine, I mean, you could think about, there's a reason that people use cocaine at, I don't know, when they want energy at parties or when they're with a significant other and they want to have great sex or what have you. That's intentionality. Um, so those conversations are as old as time themselves, uh, but we as a society haven't included it in the public narrative in the awful films that we make about these drugs. But trust me, people who spend their hard-earned money uh, for these drugs, they're not wasting their drugs uh, by being unintentional. That, that's entirely fair, and that's a good point. One other thing I want to pick up on was, and, and you kind of, kind of alluded to it, but I want to take it in a slightly different direction, which is the subtitle uh, is Chasing Liberty in the Land of Fear. Um, and one of the books that I read now a long time ago, but one that really stuck with me it was a book. I think it was called Risk, Why We Fear the Things We Shouldn't and Put Ourselves in Greater... Uh, no, it's called Fear. Why We... I don't know, whatever it was. Um, but the basic tenet was that uh, in our society, that's only been exacerbated since I've read the book because of the clickbaity nature of all the, the, the media we now consume... We live in a world where there's almost no funding for reporters. You know, they're expected to churn out X number of articles per day before it was X number of articles, you know, per month. Um, and so there's not a lot of critical thinking that goes into most writing. And so most reporters take a, a press release that comes across the wire, take it, churn it, maybe do a little bit of investigation, spit it out. And therefore, you know, you have a story. And, and some of the examples they gave was... If you read just about any headline about cancer, it's like cancer rates are going up around the world, around the world. Cancer is so scary kind of thing. And then he took the time to parse it out and he said, well, cancer is a disease of the old and we're living longer and longer and longer. So when you account for the fact that we're all getting older and this is a wonderful sign of medicine working, cancer rates should go up. But all you hear about is how cancer rates are going up and we should all be terrified. And and part of it's because you know we... we 
we don't have the resources and infrastructure. And, and just even last week, there was, you probably saw it, <laughs> uh, a scientific uh, study came out, uh, you know, I think fairly effectively, and I'm not the scientist here, but fairly effectively debunking the serotonin theory of depression. And then, you know, including myself, a lot of people were running around saying like, oh, this is proof that antidepressants were never going to work. So now we know why antidepressants don't work. And there are a lot of headlines to that effect as well. Um, and it's, it's a real problem that finding objective truth and, and piercing through actually in many ways creates more fear because we're uninformed and the media, you know, uh, I don't know how, how consciously intentionally it is these days, but it may be so, likes really flamboyant, dramatic, scary headlines, because that's what gets clicks. And, and I don't know how, if you have any thoughts on what the hell do we do about it? It's one of the things that most gravely concerns me about society is that we're kind of in a post-truth world. And if you can't agree on the facts, I don't know how you can have a debate about the facts. And, and it scares me quite a bit. Yeah, I, I think, uh, well, let's just go back to the, the, the paper that was published in Molecular Psychiatry about the serotonin thing. Um, now, if any student who's taken my class for the past 20 years um, have known that uh, there was never any evidence that serotonin played a role in depression, uh, that's a sort of, uh, uh, this is a, uh, in, in, in drug use for grownups, I try to explain, uh, like serotonin is what we call a monoamine neurotransmitter. Uh, dopamine, norepinephrine is also a monoamine neurotransmitter. And then the major theory in psychiatry is that monoamines um, uh, play a role in mood regulation. That is, uh, lower activity of these neurotransmitters, you have lower mood, depressed mood. Uh, increased activity, you have improved or increased mood. Uh, that's the simple sort of theory. As I point out in Drug Use for Grownups, that theory was developed uh, at a time when we had six neurotransmitters. Um, now there are over 100. The theory has not been appreciably updated, but people just go deeper and deeper into the theory without really taking into consideration uh, all of this new information we have about neurotransmitters, how they are co-localized, co-released, and, and all these other transmitters that we didn't include in that theory. And so I try and teach my students okay, what is the evidence for serotonin's role in uh, depression? And there is no direct evidence. And we've always known that. So this paper is not new. This information is not new, but we're treating it like it's new. We've always known. Anybody in, uh, who really has looked at this has known that. But does that mean that people who take antidepressant medications are not getting some improvement? Of course not. That doesn't mean that because antidepressant medications, which they are a misnomer by calling them that as if that's what they do uh, and that's all they do. That's just silly. Um, they have a range of effects, some of which we don't understand. And maybe some of those effects are contributing to people's improvement in mood. Uh, and so um, this sort of Narrow focus on serotonin, that was a drug company sort of uh, creation in order to sell more Prozac, in order to sell more Zoloft. Uh, that's, but that's not reality. Uh, and, and so in, in Drug Use for Grown Up, I try to walk people through just those kind of facts about drugs. When we talk about the brain disease model of drug addiction, uh, and then you're looking for direct evidence in humans, there is absolutely none. But yet we have this belief. So this is this is what I pointed out in Drug Use for Grownups. 20 years from now, somebody will be on a podcast or whatever we've created saying that, wow, did you see this new study? There is no evidence that there is um, some, no evidence in humans that there that, that uh, drug use is a, a brain disease or, or a drug addiction is a brain disease. And it's like, yeah, we know that. Uh, but that's where we're, we're at. Uh, and then you, when you point out this post-truth thing, I, I don't think we really are at post-truth. I think that we have uh, we have a lot of sort of media with social media, and we have a lot of different perspectives. Um, and at some level, that's a good thing. 
But then at another level, it could be a bad thing because there's a lack of quality control. And, you know, when you have these new medias, it takes some time for us to uh, work it out, uh, for us to triage out the noise from what's real. Uh, and I think this is just part of the growing pains. And we all have to just continue to be focused on evidence. And we have to be focused on requiring people to have quality evidence uh, when they have when they make claims, statements, and so forth. And, and, and when I say we must require people, I mean, even require me, other scientists, what's your evidence? Uh, or someone who is uh, has a podcast or whatever. What's your evidence? And so as long as we continue to ask those questions, we're going to weed out the noise from the real. Again, this is all part of being eternally optimistic and not uh, cynical and hopeless. I was just reminded of the expression that we have reptilian brains with medieval institutions and godlike technology, and uh, it creates an interesting combination of factors. I have, I have two more questions for you, and then I'll let you get back to enjoying uh, time in Switzerland. The first is, if if I if I've understood your perspective and where the evidence points, you know, it's towards decriminalization and or legalization of of all drugs. Um, so my my first question is, what what do you think is the right policy framework um, for that? And then. B, what do you think that does, you know, to change society? You know, in, in many ways, you kind of, you've come to the realization that it wasn't crack cocaine that was dra- destroying the black community. And so it's like, this is a problem certainly to be solved and there's no reason to not focus on solving it. But all of a sudden, like the impact of it may not be as big as it was when you probably went into this path as a 23-year-old or, or whatever it was. So two questions, which is like, what is what is your preference? Where do you think the evidence points in terms of, what the right policy is and, and what you think the impact of it is. Yeah, so my policy position these days is legally regulating the drugs that people are seeking. MDMA, cannabis, cocaine, and opioid like heroin, but legally regulating the market such that you control the unit dose. You can also control the route of administration. Uh, you can also have like driving, you can have a... Um, a sort of um, competence requirement before people are allowed to have a license to purchase or, I mean, there are a number of sort of ways that you can um, enhance the safety of making these things available. We can bring in experts to make sure we are being consistent with the scientific evidence in terms of unit dose, how much should be in a unit dose, what route of administration should we make available. All of these things, we can seek science advice. But the important thing is that they are legally, that the market is legally regulated. Because when you don't have a legally regulated market, you increase the likelihood of creating more potent and potentially dangerous substances. And you also increase the likelihood of people, um, substances that they were not seeking, unbeknownst to them. And, And so... Uh, when you uh, regulate the, the market, I mean, we see this with something like cannabis, where cannabis is banned, you have synthetic cannabinoid products in that illicit market. And, and people don't realize that many of these things are far more potent and potentially more dangerous as a result of people not knowing that they're more potent uh, than cannabis itself. In India, recently, there's a state in India where this just happened this week, where Uh, I think it's something like 30-some people died of alcohol poisoning. Alcohol is banned there, but people are producing illicit alcohol. This is what happens when you produce illicit substances. People are still going to consume, but you increase the risk. But when you legally regulate the market like we've done with alcohol, you're not, people are not dying from alcohol poisoning in the way that we see in this uh, Indian state uh, today. Um, And so my policy sort of uh, uh, position that I advocate for is legally regulating the market for substances that people see. And there are only a few substances that people see. Yeah. In the context of psychedelics, there's uh, some degree of debate as to whether the the medical model, um, the path that 
you know, MAPS is going down, even though I know Rick and MAPS is a, an advocate for drug policy reform broadly, um, but that it should be, you know, it's a medical model that has doctor supervision and, and doctor prescribing the gatekeepers. Do you think there's a role for that or, or is the, the real like, policy should be like anybody who wants it should be able to get it provided that it's safe, consistent, you know, well-considered supplies. So we don't risk the alcohol poisoning. So we don't risk the, the fentanyl and anything that you're taking and then, or you're not taking extra potent THC because it's synthetic as opposed to natural. I guess the question is like, what is the role for, for medicine in that? If any, and the answer may be there's not. Yeah. You know, you know, so people have different roles to play in terms of advocacy. Um, uh, certainly there can be a role for medicine in something like MDMA. Um, certainly we have, uh, a growing amount of evidence showing that, uh, MDMA is useful for treating, uh, PTSD, uh, and that's fine to have it in the medical model. And you might, as, as a society decide that maybe, uh, starting off initially in the medical model. Uh, we will learn some things about how to legally regulate it for the other market, uh, for lack of a better road, the recreational market, although that's an awful term. Um, but maybe we'll learn some things that we can use as we move forward to make it available in this other market. And that's a good thing because then we are having these kind of experiments and we're learning how to best keep people uh, safe. Uh, so I'm, I'm not opposed to that. But if we are saying it's just the medical model and physicians are the gatekeepers, um, then that causes me a great deal of concern because physicians uh, just become um, uh, cops in lab coats, basically. We will have many of the problems um, um, uh, in terms of those folks uh, deciding uh, what you can get. Uh, just think about if you had to go to your physician in order to grab a bottle of wine so you and your loved one can have a nice evening, but you're going to go to the medical profession to get a prescription to, uh, to enjoy a nice evening with your loved one. It's quite silly. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um... And then my final question was, uh, you fairly recently joined the board of MAPS. Um, was there a lot of consideration and hesitation uh, in joining the board of MAPS, given some of your perspectives on how psychedelics are viewed and, and, and what that does for the rest of the conversation around psychedelics? And, and how has it been on the board of MAPS? I had to really think about it. Um, I like Rick. Rick is one of my favorite people in the world. Uh, but you also point out that I have this sort of cognitive dissonance about how we tend to uh, really highlight this sort of dichotomy between psychedelics and other drugs. But me being on the board, I, what I do is I help to remind people that that's a political sort of split. That's not a reality. Uh, and not being in the room, that conversation might not be had. Uh, right now, uh, I'm still, I still have enough energy to uh, be there in the room and fight those fights. Um, but at some point, I will not have such energy. And then hopefully other people will fight that fight. And um, I'll spend more time in Switzerland. So uh, hopefully I'll be able to uh, do that so I can enjoy my life and so I can enjoy being a grown up. You know what I'm saying? Yep, I do. Well, I think that is a, a wonderful uh, and poetic note to end on. So I just wanted to express my sincere gratitude, Carol, for being part of the podcast, for being part of the documentary, for all the work you're doing. I, I can say without equivocation, this has been the most informative uh, podcast we've hosted. So so thank you for that. And you know, I hope, genuinely hope that as my intention was to help provide a platform so you can get the message that you're advocating for out in, in a clear, coherent manner, not mediated by uh, reporters who may have an agenda or don't understand it or are not thinking critically about it. I, I hope you feel like we provided that platform and uh, yeah, just, just thank you. Right on, bro. And you know, man, uh, if I could ever help, you know where I'm at. Uh, we said this when we met in California and I just I hope ordinary uh, ordinary trip does uh, all that you want it to do, and 
I'm here, man. I really dig what you're doing. I really dig your spirit. I really um, uh, think that you are one of those people who care about other folks. And that's that's all that's that's all we want. We want people to take care of other people. You can't be black and conscious and live in America. Those were the first words out of Dr. Carl Hart's mouth as we hopped on the recording platform and started to prepare for our conversation. And for the first time ever, I wanted to end the podcast before it even started, because that, my friends, is a mic drop. Of course, the conversation continued beautifully. When I said at the end of the conversation that this was the most enlightening podcast I've ever had, I meant it. The insight, the conviction, the passion, and most importantly, the data that Carl brings to the conversation around drug policy and reform is unparalleled in my experience. And in listening to Carl talk about the drug war and policies, I couldn't help but be reminded of the line from Tom Robbins that goes, what is politics after all, but the compulsion to preside over property and make other people's decisions for them. Liberty is the very opposite of ownership and control and cannot then result from political action, either at the polls or the barricades, but rather evolves out of attitude. And few people bring a unique attitude to the conversation more than Carl. What also struck me was just how much Carl and I started on very different roads, but seemed to be converging on a path that involves us outing ourselves as doing things that others say can't be done or shouldn't be done. We are, in many ways, the tricksters of the world, whose job, again, in the words of Tom Robbins, is to break taboos, create mischief, stir things, and, most importantly, give people what they want, some sort of freedom. Well, Carl, I tip my trickster hat to you. You are pushing the boundaries and working towards not just freedom willy-nilly, but freedom informed by data, common sense, and a healthy dose of enjoying life. And that is a wonderful purpose. And if the media wants to misconstrue that for whatever reason, you can count on me to stand by you in making sure we set the record straight. As a quick reminder, please follow, rate, and review our podcast and sign up for our newsletter at fieldtripping.fm or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to Field Tripping. I'm your host, Ronan Levy. Until next time, stay curious. Breathe properly, and remember, every day is a field trip if you let it be one. Field tripping is created by Ronan Levy. Our producer is Conrad Page, and associate producers are Macy Baker and Alex Sherman. Special thanks to our production partner, Quill, and of course, many thanks to Dr. Carl Hart for joining us today. To learn more about his work, check out his most recent book, Drug Use for Grownups, Chasing Liberty, a Land of Fear.